Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Well, hello again. Welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. We are continuing season two here on The Commons, our conversations about important uh, figures and movements in church history. And here in episode three, I'm joined by a familiar guest, familiar voice to all of you, uh, Wes Callahan. Uh, Wes Callahan is one of the main teachers for Roman Roads Media Old Western Culture Series. He's also the founder of Scola Classical Tutorials and Hill Abbey, a frequent guest at Circe Conferences, a wonderful speaker. And today he's joining me for a conversation, not about one early church father, but about three who are commonly grouped together, known as the Cappadocian Fathers. So we're going to be discussing those three important uh, church fathers, wonderful theologians, all of whom played an important role in the formation of Orthodox Trinitarian theology, as well as uh, being wonderful pastors, writers, and thinkers. And so... uh, Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for uh, tuning in with us. And now, here begins my conversation about the Cappadocian Fathers with Wes Callahan. Well, Wes Callahan, welcome back. Uh, it hasn't been too long this time. <laughs> well, thank you, Brian. No, it hasn't. Uh, and uh, thanks for having me back. I enjoy doing this with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we, we've done the first episode on St. John Chrysostom. Then I was joined by Greg Wilbur last time, uh, talking about St. Ambrose. And now, um, roughly in that same time period, um, fourth century, um, we're going to talk today about the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, looking forward to this. Um, and yeah. um, each of these men in uh, were influential, very significant in their own right. Um, but I want to start out by just discussing 
why it is that these three men, St. Basil the Great, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and St. Gregory of uh, Nazianzus are referred to together. Uh, why are they referred to uh, sort of as a so closely linked as the Cappadocian fathers? Yeah, um, partly because <clears throat> because they were uh, they were they were uh, connected in 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 a, in a relationship. Uh, two of them were brothers. Um, um, uh, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa were brothers, and Gregory Nazianzus was uh, their great friend. Uh, so, um, uh, and they're all from the region of uh, from uh, of uh, Cappadocia, um, uh, which is a central modern day Turkey, um, and um, uh, was a real uh, a real center uh, because of their efforts became a real center of Christianity. But they're all from the same region. Uh, uh, um, uh, have a lot of early formation together. They go to the University of Athens together, uh, at least Basil and, and Nazianzus do, uh, and pr primarily because uh, these three uh, together kind of continue the work done by Athanasius uh, in, um, in, in, in in Christian definitions, uh, in you know in 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 Orthodox definitions of of. Um, uh, of of God, so Athanasius works, of course, on Christology. You know, back in the Council of Nicaea, and then in his combat with the Arians for the next fifty years, uh, during which takes place during part of the the early life of the Cappadocians, Athanasius is dealing with Christology and the nature of Christ um, against the Arians, and the full deity of Christ. The Arian, or the, the Cappadocians, pick up on the work of Athanasius and they push it further, developing uh, a, um, a Trinitarian theology in general. So it's 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 um, uh, due to them that we have a, a real uh, a clear and accurate uh, and powerful development of um, of uh, the discussion of of, uh, of the three persons uh, in uh, in in one essence and so on um, God in three persons the Trinitarian theology that becomes fully developed under them uh, so uh, that's the reason that's the primary reason they're called Cappadocians because the reason they're lumped together because they're 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 friends they're working together on. Uh, uh, in the ministry, uh, and primarily remembered because of their work in Trinitarian theology, specifically. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting, and I, I want to try to draw together what um, we've talked about in this season on this podcast uh, so far, because in the first episode, uh, when we talked about, about uh, St. John Chrysostom, he's not only rem remembered for being a great uh, preacher, a great orator, um, but also a, a great pastor and contributing to the development of of liturgy, um, which yeah. that influences continued to this day. And then, of course, I talked with Greg Wilbur about St. Ambrose, and so you had, um, again, an incredibly skilled, talented uh, bishop, but uh, contributed so much to the music and, and singing of the early church. And now with the Cappadocians, we have these, these three great... Uh, Theologians, um, pastors, uh, friends who who contributed a great deal to the development of of our theology, and so it's it's great to see these different strands, you know, all around the same time period, really being um, being brought together and still feeling that influence. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, so let's let's talk a bit about them individually, because as I as I mentioned, these men were were giants in their own right. Um, yeah, uh, and when you think about the work that they did together, it's it's really um, really inspiring. But uh, let's talk about uh, Saint Basil the Great or, or Basil of Caesarea. Um, we want the one of the purposes of of this podcast is to give people just kind of a an introduction, a kind of a doorway into the lives of these great men. Um, so let's talk about how he became such an influential church father. Um, so tell us about 
Saint Basil and and his influence. Um, yeah, he uh, and 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 by the way, your earlier comments about um, uh, about the you know the, the power of this age. I mean, this in some ways this is you know uh, some people describe this as kind of a, a golden the golden age of early Christianity because because of um, because there's there's so many powerhouses of the of the faith: Athanasius, Augustine, the Cappadocians, Ambrose, Saint Jerome, John Chrysostom, the Desert Fathers. Um, they're just you know you can't turn 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 around without stumbling over you know some powerful figure. Yeah, uh, it's really a, really an amazing age and the beginning of the age of the councils. Right, and you're you're highlighting for the listeners all the people that I'm going to miss in my my list. Of, <laughs> <laughs> this is it's very hard to narrow down to to nine or ten episodes who to cover. So thanks for drawing attention yeah. to that, Wes. Um, <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Anytime yeah. I can help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and Basil Basil uh, is 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 obviously one of these guys. So uh, so yeah, he uh, he and his and his uh, younger brother uh, Gregory, known as Gregory of Nyssa, they come from a, a family that has a long Christian heritage. Uh, parents and grandparents uh, who are who are faithful Christians. Who um, uh, his you know and and the women in the family, mothers and grandmothers and sisters, uh, also uh, have been uh, named saints by the Catholic Church and deservedly so. Um, just a, a, a powerful Christian family, uh, uh, well-educated, uh, lots of people in the family well-educated uh, in rhetoric and literature in general, um, uh, and they're active in uh, many members of the family, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his ancestors active in civil life and so on. Uh, so they would have been <clears throat> uh, not as famous in history, but they would have been uh, um, uh, probably showing up in the history books anyway, or at least the records of the of the of of the times in that area, just for their involvement in 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 in, uh, in in civic life and the leadership they took in Cappadocia, but Basil, um, uh, if you're, you're I, I'm always afraid I've wandered off the, tri- to the off, off the question. I think your question was how did he become <laughs> who, he, well, who he was? Is that right? Well, I'm sort of left it open ended for you to let's, okay. Uh, okay. why why was um, Basil so so influential? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, there's there's a, a number of amazing things. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, just his work, his his writings in theology, which, along with Gregory Nazianzus and and uh, Gregory of Nyssa, um, as as we said earlier, uh, influences the direction that Christian theology would take in terms of describing the Trinity. Um, another is uh, uh, his influence on monasticism. Uh, he uh, the rule of Saint Basil. Uh, which um, he promulgated and, and uh, is, is still followed in Eastern Christianity, had a tremendous influence in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean monasticism, like St. Benedict's rule did in Western monasticism, um, uh, very much in the same order. So uh, in his the theological writings, in his uh, monastic writings, uh, and then in, in local practical uh, uh, charity, uh, Basil is known for taking the leadership in his region of the world in uh, founding, uh, you know, orphanages and hospitals and, you know, the equivalent of soup kitchens and his work on behalf of the poor um, uh, and and, uh, the, and the marginalized in a society that up to that day paid no attention to them. One of the great, we all know one of the great uh, radicalisms of Christianity was starting to take care of people that, that in the old pagan Roman world were simply shoved out and abandoned. Uh, and and uh, and Christianity elevates the status, you know, of, of of women and foreigners and of slaves, but also of the of the poor and the sick. And and it's in this age, under the influence of Basil and also John Chrysostom and the others, but especially Basil is known for this, that we have um, the beginning of social institutions designed to take care of people, 
that that uh, uh, that Roman paganism would simply abandon. There was nothing like hospitals in ancient Roman times. There were doctors, uh, but but social institutions funded by the government or by or, or by private contributions, designed to house and take care of and show love to show show you know civic and social love to people, that was a new thing. And Basil really takes the lead in that. Um, and so, in terms of of, of Christian uh, social work and charity, he's um, uh, he's um, uh, he's well known. Mm. I might mention, in terms of his theology, one of the books is very influential and still is in print and available is a short little book called "On the Holy Spirit," which is a brilliant exposition of the theology of the Holy Spirit and also an example of the way he he theologizes, um, the way he handles uh, uh, Scripture, and it shows why he um, you know um, why he was such a uh, a, a great preacher. He was also known for his oratory. Basil was well trained in oratory, as was Gregory Nazianzus. Uh, and uh, Basil, in his own day and for and for a long time afterwards, I guess, still uh, was known for his oratory. And so, not just his, his uh, you know, his uh, um, not just for the theology, for the content of his writings, as he remembered, but for the brilliance of the of uh, his spoken uh, of his speaking style. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's interesting to me that uh, as We've been talking about the early church fathers and these uh, the different bishops that we have discussed so far. Um, it's very difficult to pin any of them down to, you know, they they were not um, men of a single skill. Um, they're very talented men, very skilled, gifted men. Um, yeah. Uh, if if you had to, this is doing him a great injustice, kind of like I asked you to do with St. John Chrysostom, and then I asked Greg Wilbur to do with St. Ambrose, but if, if you had to highlight um, the most lasting contribution of St. Basil the Great, what what do you think that would be? <laughs> yeah, that, it's like right, picking, that is terrible. Who's your favorite child, right? You know, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, that is really hard. I think, uh, um, what most people would say, uh, and I, you know, I'm happy to go along with this. Uh, it's his his, uh, his uh, theology, <laughs> his contributions to theology. Um, that would that's what that's the way most people would answer, and rightly so. Um, I, I I think because because I um, I've, I've spent a lot a lot of time studying and and, and teaching to my students the influence of uh, uh, and the tremendous important the kind of the under the radar importance in Western. A culture, especially in the Middle Ages, of monasticism. Um, I'm 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 drawn to thinking of his influence there, uh, and there he's less known in the West, more in the, more in the East. But I'm but I'm I'm looking for 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 parallel movements. You know, the West the West and the East are not divided. Um, it's, it's one church, and and we see we see a, a Benedict founding this movement called monasticism, which will be critically important in the survival not just of the church but of culture in the West. Right. And and right. Uh, and Basil's rule in the East and and the in, and the monasticism that flows from him is kind of paralleling. In fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of cross pollinization between the two, hmm. as well. So I guess. Um, I, you know, you, you, that's one of those questions you have to answer by saying, "Well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, intellectual labors, then it's his theology. What about his practical right. labors, then it's monasticism?" Right. Um, so, yeah, so, terrible, terrible question, Brian. Yeah, terrible I was going to say it's it's best just not to ask. Um, <laughs> now, uh, okay, so continuing to to talk about them individually, um, Saint Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, the of course they all having friendship and work together. They obviously all lived in the same time period. Um, so let's talk yes. about him. I, I think uh, Gregory of Nyssa, perhaps a little less known to our listeners, um, I'm assuming there, than, than Basil the Great was. So 
Uh, talk to us about him and his influence uh, in the early church. Um, yeah, and yeah, he probably is a little bit less known than than uh, the others. Although in circles that would you know really uh, know these guys, he's not considered as less less important. Um, right. Um, he's he, he takes a subordinate position, probably partly because you know in in the uh, um, uh, in both the uh, the Western Eastern Church, we think of the Cappadocian. You know, fathers uh, in the Eastern Church, in particular, they have another category they call the three holy hierarchs, uh, and those are Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus, and uh, and John Chrysostom. <laughs> so Gregory of Nyssa gets left out, right? Um, but, uh, and they think of those three, you know, for for various theological reasons. But so you know, have these groups: the Cappadocian Fathers, the Holy Hierarchs, and and Gregory of Nyssa doesn't really get to fit in any of them, and yet. Uh, he uh, he deserves a lot of uh, a lot of attention. He's only a couple of years younger than his brother uh, Basil, uh, two or three years younger than Nazianzus, I get I guess. Um, not as influential in terms of his social activity. Um, um, he has a reputation of, as not being as um, uh, administratively talented as Basil certainly was. Um, he has a reputation, and I think more or less deserved, of being less, perhaps, uh, um, uh, uh, systematically theological as, as Gregory uh, Nazianzus was. He has a reputation for being uh, more uh, more mystical. Um, I'm not sure that uh, I think that can be overemphasized, but um, he, this this mystical element comes partly because Gregory, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons why um, uh, people. Um, or know him a little bit less, there might be some uh, reluctance on the part of some people because Gregory of Nyssa is very influenced by Origen and by, um, um, uh, and by um, you know, Origen's uh, Neoplatonism. Hmm. Uh, Origen has never been called by any branch of the church Saint Origen. He's never been considered a church father uh, because of the, of the danger of some of his writings, what later were considered heresy, his subordinationism, his universalism, you know, some other things. Uh, but but Origen's always been deeply deeply respected, so he's called a theologian, great church writer, but never a father or a saint. Um, uh, and but Gregory of Nyssa is he's considered a church father, and he's considered a saint by those branches of the church that, that canonize or glorify uh, people, uh, even though uh, he seems to uh, verge in the direction of kind of uh, sympathy, sympathy with Origen, even to the extent in some of Gregory of Nyssa's writings that look like a friendliness to universalism, origin-style universalism. He never outright commits himself to it, but he, but, uh, but he um, writes uh, you know, sympathetically, and that might make some people nervous. But the church is, no, no branch of the church has ever said, he's heretical, he can't call him a father, he's not a saint, but they all accept him as one of them. Um, he writes, when he writes uh, his, his, his really great stuff, some of his best stuff is things like his book on the soul and the resurrection. Just tremendous exploration of it. But when he does, he writes in a way that's not kind of like, you know, systematic or scholastic. It's thoroughly biblical. Uh, it's it's very well reasoned. Um, but he reasons in, in this, um, in a way that uh, I guess you can only describe as more, um, you know, more more mystical than, than surely rational. Uh, I think it's even misrepresent, mis misrepresenting for me to put it that way, but that's the best way I can think of it. Um, He's more he's more uh, poetic. Although Gregory Nazianzus wrote some great poetry and hymns and so on, Nyssa uh, was certainly a poetic uh, mind and writer. Now, um, some the some writers that I that I've run across um, have uh, I wouldn't say charged, but but maybe 
at least hinted um, that uh, Gregory of Nyssa was a is a difficult theologian to pin down. Um, yeah, a bit ambiguous at times. Um, and I think maybe you hinted at what you're getting at his uh, where he seems sympathetic with origin, um, or at least hinting at universalism. Do you do you think that those claims are fair? Um, what what would be your response to that? You know, um, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I, I'm not a good enough uh, um, uh, student of Gregory uh, to to be able to answer that question well. I, I think what I would say um, is, um, uh, and I will, well, well, actually I would answer this. I would say, no, I don't think it's fair to charge him with universalism. Um, I don't think that he held that because the church, um, the, the, the church in the first millennium, the, the undivided church spoke out against universalism, but they don't speak out against Gregory. And mm-hmm. there's, uh, I, I know of no, no, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm not a completely th- you know, thorough student of the first millennium, but I, I know enough about it to know that the church never condemned any of Gregory's writings the way they condemned some of Origen's writings. Right. So uh, just on, on that score, I would say I don't think it would be fair to condemn him or to charge him with universalism because if he were truly guilty of that, I think that um, we, we would have seen voices of the church um, you know, uh, making noise about it. Right. So um, that's, that's, that's my tentative response. What I have read of him, I saw nothing that, that smacked of universalism, but I haven't read everything of, of Nyssa's. Yeah. Well, and and that makes sense. I mean, it's not as if the church was was shy about coming to conclusions on those matters. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, um, if it, ambiguous, perhaps, but um, certainly not worthy of of um, his writings or being rejected. Um, yeah, I think the ambiguity probably comes from our inability to understand. It's not ambiguous in that he's uh, trying to say something and pussyfooting around it and hinting at something he believes, but doesn't want to come right out and say it's right. not that kind of ambiguity. Right. Yeah. Right. And and of course, given the um, the topics of his writings, it's not as if we should be surprised by inability to understand um, at right. times. Right. Right. Um, some of the some of the modern people who have who have. Uh, um, uh, uh, been uh, acted like universalists um, modern writers who who appeal to to, to Gregory um, oh, they have different ways of doing it but um, some of them better some of them worse in general when they when they when they appeal to origin and and try to appeal to Nyssa as universalists they are pointing out uh, the things where origin uh, and Nyssa are are, are are arguing from laudable you know uh, presumptions uh, origin for example although he's condemned by the church as a universalist uh, the church says, you know, in, in a number of the councils and so on later on, that universalism cannot be held legitimately by a, by a Christian origin. At least, you know, you have to uh, um, you have to give him credit. He's not saying we must believe that everyone must be saved because it would just be so sad if anyone were lost. Origin argues from a thoroughgoing belief in the power of the gospel. He says, how can you how can how can it be imagined that anything would fall or could stand before the power of the gospel? So that that seems like an admirable motive, though he derived the wrong conclusion from it. Right, and I think Greg, Gregory tends to do the same thing. He has this deep, uh, uh, deep understanding of the of the infinite and utterly unbounded love and compassion of God, and he argues from that presupposition, not from a sentimentalist, you know, oh, I can't imagine Grandma being in hell kind of thing. Right, right, and that and that is um, e- even rejecting the conclusion. It is at least certainly a better starting point. I think um, absolutely, yeah, some, certainly something to be said for that. Um, yeah. Now, last but not least, of, of the three Cappadocian fathers, let's let's discuss uh, Saint Gregory of 
Nazianzus. Um, yeah. He, he too was a bishop, um, a very influential theologian. So what should we remember about him? Right. Uh, Gregory <laughs> Nazianzus, he might, be, he, he might be the most profound of the theologians hmm. of the three. Uh, in fact, um, he's one of the few people that uh, gets the title theologian um, uh, um, in, in history. Uh, at least uh, um, in the, the, the Eastern Church has, um, they, they call John uh, um, the beloved disciple. John, they call him John the theologian, the author of the, of, the, of the fourth gospel, John the theologian. They call Gregory, Gregory the theologian. Uh, and then uh, there's a guy in the in the uh, um, uh, around around the year 1000 at the end of the millennium called uh, 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 Saint Simeon the New Theologian. Those are the only three people the Eastern Church give the name of theologians. So that tells you how, how much the, how 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 highly the East views him, and the West as well. Though they don't they don't use that kind of they're not using those titles. So there again, there's that that kind of three lumping. Um, Nazianzus uh, is the guy that John of Damascus. Who about uh, um, three or three and a half centuries later, uh, re, uh, to whom John of Damascus refers most in his uh, in his great work, his systematic theology. John of Damascus wrote a book called The Fount of Knowledge, which is comprised of a, a philosophical treatise and then a and then a section on on heresies, and then a section called On the Orthodox Faith, which is a review of what the Church has always believed up to his time, an attempt not to be novel and original, but to summarize what what uh, you know what Orthodox, Catholic, Universal, non-heretical Christianity ha has taught. And, uh, and John of Damascus uh, refers, um, uh, draws more heavily on, on uh, uh, Gregory Nazianzus than anybody. Um, and that book, John of Damascus's book, is hugely important in both East and West in the centuries following. And so, uh, so indirectly, Gregory Nazianzus is, right? I mean, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like pointing out that uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and, and Luther and Calvin are all uh, you know, are all uh, great medieval or Reformation theologians, but they're all uh, heavily dependent on Augustine. So Augustine is uh, is uh, influential indirectly through all those guys. And so you could say the same thing about Nazianzus through John of Damascus and others. I think people probably appeal more to Gregory Nazianzus and his uh, and his theology than they do to the theology of Nyssa and Basil. Uh, so of the three Cappadocians, I think it would be safe to say he's the most profound theologian and the most highly respected. Mm -hmm. uh, not that the others are anything to sneeze at, but he's the he's the big gun. Right. Now, um, one of the things that, that stands out in, in considering these three men, as, along with uh, St. Ambrose, with uh, St. John Chrysostom, um, that I find uh, truly inspiring uh, from my perspective is that um, they are sort of supreme pastor theologians. Um, and and those, uh, perhaps this is a, a modern problem, but um, those are almost titles that we distinguish now. Um, we think of the work of a pastor and the work of a theologian as being very different, and yet these men all seem to bring that together um, in a in a beautiful way. I mean, not, not just in occupying the office of pastor or performing the duties of a theologian or a pastor, but, but they contributed in both worlds um, to the, this kind of perfect blending of the office um, and— you know, had their, their yeah. concern for the poor, concern for their, their people, um, but then also uh, great defenders of the truth as well. Yeah, yeah. And it, it might be, I, I, think that's, I think that's very true. Um, and that, in fact, that's characteristic probably in general of many of the great men of this age that you're talking about in your, in your series and so on. Uh, every one of them 
Uh, of none of them can it be said that he was a great theologian, but you know he wasn't a very good pastor, right. or you know great pastor, but um, had no ideas worth talking about. <laughs> but right. also, um, it's it's probably it it probably is the case. I mean that um, we're more susceptible in our uh, in modern times uh, to make um, um, not just a distinction but a separation between pastoral ability and theological ability, and for them it's all of a piece. Right. And so you see. Like a, a Gregory Nazianzus, for example, um, he actually was uh, appointed to lead the Second Ecumenical Council, uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, and, and, uh, um, uh, and that shows the ability, not only the ability that people attributed to him in ad, uh, administration, um, that he could lead a council that's concerned with theological things, but their uh, trust in him as a pastor, because the, because the councils were always seen as pastoral councils. Um, you know, they're they're not just settling things to be written down in, in theological tomes, but they're settling things that preachers have to preach and that and the pastors have to give out in their homilies in order to lead people to to God. You can't lead people to God through Christ without knowing who God is, who Christ is, and why Christ is the way, without knowing the gospel. And the councils are always fundamentally about protecting the gospel. A heresy arises, the council meets uh, has to deal with deal with it, and that's a pastoral concern. Mm. And um, so, uh, like like other leaders of the councils and all the other men at the councils, all the bishops who make them up, uh, Gregory Nazianzus uh, um, is called to lead the council, to you know, to chair it, you might say, because they acknowledge his um, his not just his intellectual but his pastoral ability. Mm. And um, I think that's probably what he loved even more than you know than uh, what we think of the sh- as the sheerly intellectual side of theology, because he retires from the council. He's tired from the from the from the, the 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 struggle and political strife, though it's important, um, because he's uh, you know he's um, not just because he's getting older and feels that his resources waning, but um, be, but because he loves the contemplation of Christ that he hopes everyone will experience and he wants to experience. And you can see that in all of these. You can see underneath everything this deep love of Jesus Christ, which makes them the men that they were. Now, these three men were. Um... They were, as you said, particularly important at the councils um, in even the formulation of the Nicene Creed um, and uh, uh, Trinitarian theology. Uh, can you give us sort of an, an overview for our listeners of, of uh, what their contributions were and, and why it was so important at both at, during their time historically and then subsequently in, in church history, too? I know that's a tall order, but... Just sort of a a reader's digest version of why those issues and councils were so important and the role these men played. Um, yeah, the terms. Yeah, that's a <laughs> um, that is a tall order. Uh, but the terms that we uh, tend to most to use now, um, like homoousios, which is given to us by um, by the first council. Uh, and, and especially Athanasius, who argues this, uh, this the, the value of this term, and then terms like uh, hypostases, which the Cappadocians are known for giving us. Um, these terms that we use most frequently now, we do because we think they're the best. Um, they're, they're the best way of expressing. Um, um, uh, not that they're the only way, but they're the best way of expressing, in contrast to error, you know what the uh, um, uh, what we must say about God uh, and about God revealed in Jesus Christ. So they've uh, they've contributed that to us. They've contributed to us uh, a way of talking in terms of uh, person, uh, three persons. When we say three persons, 
um, uh, one uh, one God in three persons, and even the great hymn, Holy, 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 where we say that. Mm-hmm. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's an inheritance of the Cappadocians. It's an inheritance generally of Christianity, but the Cappadocians are the, are the three uh, who in God's providence contributed this way of talking in order to protect us from error, just like uh, it's the whole church that contributed to us the understanding of Christology. But Athanasius, in God's providence, was the means for giving us homoousios, the same substance. Uh, and these, uh, and like Athanasius, the Cappadocians uh, have given us the idea that you um, uh, that you can um, uh, that you can borrow where you must the things, the terms, the categories that you need as tools. And so, like homoousios, uh, the term hypostasis is something brought out of uh, earlier pre-Christian pagan philosophy and turned to Christian use. So, there. So, another thing they've contributed to us is that. Uh, um, um, that is the idea that in doing theology, uh, which is um, uh, for them, and, and, and sometimes they'll say this, doing theology, which is a kind of prayer, in doing theology before the face of God, uh, we can draw from every place where God has given truth, and, and that includes the, the pagans. So the pagans, for very, for, for in various ways and, and uh, for various reasons, develop certain terms like logos, uh, you know, or um, uh, or uh, homoousios, or uh, hypostases, which didn't mean originally what they came to mean in Christian hands, but they were legitimately turned to Christian purposes, because in the Hellenistic culture of the of the early church, uh, people knew enough about these terms that they said, "This is valuable. We can use this." Uh, and it was often the heretics who would say things like, "You can't use that. That's not in the Bible." That's Arius's argue, argument against Athanasius, and Athanasius suggests homoousios. That's not biblical language. Uh, but Athanasius says it doesn't matter. It's a biblical concept expressed in a in a term that we need uh, to use to clarify things now. Mm-hmm. And the Cappadocians have given you know given that kind of theologizing to us. They give us the doctrine of the Trinity being one essence, one uh, um, uh, one usios, and three persons, three hypostases, uh, united in a single Godhead. Uh, and uh, um, and um, um, and, and so when we talk about the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, that we got from the Cappadocians. All this language, this Trinitarian language, um, uh, comes, from, uh, comes from them. You don't see this kind of language earlier. You see these doctrines earlier, but they're, you might say, fuzzier because the need hasn't arisen for clarification. So now we're clearer on the doctrine of the Trinity because of, because of these expressions of the Cappadocians. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, we, we might we might throw in uh, one one thing as well. Um, it wasn't just the education of these men. They had a great education. It wasn't just the education of them, uh, of these guys, that made them what they were. And I, I, I hope it didn't give that impression to our listeners by what I said earlier. Uh, because one of the friends of Basil and Gregory who went to the University of Athens with them uh, was a guy named Julian who later became an emperor known as Julian the Apostate. When Julian, as a young man, went to the university with Basil and Gregory, and was one of their buddies, hung out with them, he he claimed to be a Christian. Later, abandoned that Christianity and reverted to paganism, and tried to turn uh, the the Roman world pagan again, after Constantine and his descendants had, had, had begun to make uh, to emphasize Christianity. So um, I don't mean I didn't mean to suggest earlier that uh, you know this kind of education would you know was is the thing that's responsible for their godliness and their faithfulness and their greatness, because Julian had the same kind of education. Right. He, he didn't have the same kind of family, and he clearly, you know, for whatever other reasons, didn't have the same kind of heart. But he had the same education, so it's not just education alone, you know, that uh, that, that makes them. Right. Um, well, and and on behalf of um, most of us nowadays, I'm I'm glad that it's not solely our education that makes us. 
Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> uh, the, I appreciate you being willing to take on that very big question. I mean, that that's a it's a tough one to answer, but I, I think it's important. I at least wanted us to to hit on that a bit because one of the things that can be very easy for us to do is to forget that the the theological heritage that we have for for example as as handed down to us in the creeds um was hard won um yeah know, and i think it yeah. can be easy to forget that because we're not necessarily embroiled at least that we pay attention to we're not embroiled in those same controversies i i don't think that those yeah. old heresies have necessarily gone away sometimes they're just repackaged and represented but um right right and but, we can be subject to the same heresies and mm. their new forms if we don't know our church history, if we don't study these guys and see what they did, yeah. and uh, and and the hard work, as you suggested, that they did. When when we talk about this as a golden age, it doesn't mean it was an easy age. This was an age of ferocious battle, yeah. you know, on, on behalf of the truth. Um, when other people are saying, "No, it's this," I mean, you know, when Arius and these and these other guys, all these other the Apollinarians, the subordinationists, and all the all the other heresies that the church is struggling against. Um, were presenting plausible cases, and Christians right and left were following them. So this was it was an age of ferocious battles, very hard work, right. and it would be a, a, a terrible pity if we if if we didn't honor that, and and, and all that work was for nothing. It's not, but we uh, we want to participate in in in, uh, in preserving the knowledge of the work they did, so we don't wind up reinventing the wheel, which we're always in danger of doing if we're ignorant of history. Right, and we want to give honor where honor is due, and um, yeah. Yeah, not not forget their their contributions. Um, yeah. So, um, in in closing here, um, if if our listeners wanted to learn more about these men, explore a bit more, um, where where would you recommend that they start? Do you have any favorite books or resources for learning more about the Cappadocian Fathers, whether whether collectively or um, even the time period or the men individually? Yeah, um, there's there's some good information about them, of course, on the on the, on the internet, and the and it's been a while. But the last day, I mean, even the last time I looked at the Wikipedia article, it did a good job. Um, I think that what I what I mentioned um, uh, in our discussion about Saint John Chrysostom is kind of the same thing here. Uh, some of the some of the uh, the good general church histories are a good way to start because it, it places them in their context. Uh, so um, you know, Bruce Shelley's church history, uh, Philip Schaff's history of the Christian Church. Um, some of those, uh, um, and there's a number of good ones out there. Most of the uh, most of the ones I've run across have been decent. Those are simply ones I've used. Uh, but a good uh, general church history is a good way to start uh, because then you get them in uh, in the in the chronological flow. You see what came before them, what came after them. You get them in context, uh, and then um, you could um, uh, read uh, more about them. Uh, there's um, there are a number of books uh, we share the same title, the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, I haven't looked at many of them, but there's one is probably the first hit you get on Amazon if you looked it up, and that looked like a decent one. But I think maybe the next thing to do after reading uh, about them in the general histories, which is the place to start, uh, would be to read some of their uh, some of their own works. Um, uh, <clears throat> Basil the Great's book um, on uh, on the Holy Spirit uh, still in print uh, is an excellent short work, um, uh, just a profoundly you know. Um, uh, Profoundly um, uh, uh, biblical and and uh, and uh, full of theological sweetness uh, and recognized on all hands as a as a tremendous work. That's a good way to get, uh, to be introduced to it. Uh, uh, Gregory um, Gregory Nazianzus uh, wrote um, um, uh, some uh, not only a theology which is a little tougher to get into, 
um, but still were well worth reading. But he wrote uh, an oratory on the death of uh, Basil because Basil died earlier and Gregory of Nazianzus, his friend, uh, wrote a, 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 an oration on the death of his friend that's well worth reading. And it shows uh, the brilliance and the oratorical skill as well as the, you know, the, the biblical learning that they bring, uh, bring to bear. Mm. Uh, that's worth reading. Uh, Gregory of, of Nyssa, uh, his, uh, his book on, uh, on the soul and the resurrection is tremendous especially for his defense of a doctrine that's, that's uh, being abandoned even by so-called Bible-believing Christians in the modern age. And I can't remember what the statistics were on the last studies I read were, you know, a survey of uh, so-called conservative church-going Bible-believing Christians in America who doubt uh, the physical resurrection. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's just, uh, that's just mind boggling because that's one of those non-negotiable essential doctrines of the faith as established by the church over the ages. Right. And so Nissa's little work on the soul and the resurrection, um, is, is a brilliant exposition of that, of that fundamental doctrine. Uh, so reading, reading the works of these guys themselves is a good way to start. Basil's on the Holy Spirit, Nazianzus oration on, uh, his friend on the, on the death of his friend and, uh, Nissa's on the soul and the resurrection. Those are three that I'd recommend to get into their start getting into their minds, and then just moving on from there. Philip Schaff's 38-volume early church history, uh, the, the, the early church fathers set. Uh, it's a massive set, uh, but it's well worth having, and it's got a bunch of good representative stuff from all three of these guys. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if the 38 volumes seems a little intimidating, you can buy them individually, I believe. Yeah. Right? You just have yeah, to pick the right, right volumes. Um, uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, Wes, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, discuss the Cappadocian Fathers with us. Um, Inspiring, informative, uh, as always. So thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Brian. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of The Commons. Thanks again to Wes Callahan for uh, this wonderful conversation today. And until next time, I'm your host, Brian Phillips, and we'll talk to you again soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 